thank uh, Dean Velasco. Dean, thank you for filling in the pulpit last week. I heard it was an edifying time. And uh, this week we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to open up to you by going over maybe a familiar character, especially this time of year. By the time Patrick was born, at the beginning of the 5th century, the Roman Empire ruled Britain for 400 years. Like the Romans did in most places they conquered, they thoroughly Romanized this island roughly the size of North Carolina. This Romanization included the spreading of Roman culture, the development of cities like London, York, and most of the cities ending with Chester. And Romanization also included, though historians aren't really that sure, the spread of Christianity to Britain. This is the world into which Patrick was born better known as St. Patrick. Now, there are plenty of misunderstandings about Patrick, and you've probably heard some of those uh, because the criticism of St. Patrick's Day is sort of on the level of criticizing the Easter Bunny or criticizing Santa Claus. So I don't want to hop on the dog pile of all that because it doesn't take thinking too hard that drunkenness doesn't honor the memory of St. Patrick. Uh, But there are some things we could clarify. Uh, For starters, Patrick was not a native Irishman. Uh, He was raised in a nominal Christian home in Britain. He was a Roman Brit. But even though he was raised in a nominal Christian home, his father was a deacon in the church. In fact, Patrick's first encounter with Ireland was not intentional. It was forced. When Patrick was 16, a group of Irish raiders took him captive And he wouldn't escape Ireland until six years later. When Patrick first saw Ireland, he saw a land that was unlike his home. Unlike Britain, Ireland was largely untouched by Roman influence. It was not developed, and most of the people were illiterate and pagan. So when he was taken captive, he had nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. He writes this in his journal. And there in Ireland, the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who had regard for my objection and mercy on my youth and ignorance. Patrick would make it back home. And it's tough to say how long he stayed in Britain before he felt the Lord drawing him back to return to Ireland. But return to Ireland, he would. And in fact, he returned to the same place he was held captive. The teachings of Scripture are what convinced Patrick that the gospel was was to be taken to the ends of the earth. And if you think about it, at his time, Ireland was thought to be the end of the earth. So Patrick would stay in Ireland for 30 years, never going back home to Britain. And throughout that time, he endured major opposition and persecution. At one point, he wrote that every day, every day, he expected that he would either be killed, robbed, or arrested. I don't think I've been through one day of my life expecting any of those things. He was the only Christian missionary there. Not just enduring that, but enduring loneliness. 
and though there was much opposition, thousands came to Christ through Patrick's ministry. And the Irish Christians inherited Patrick's passion for the Bible and for missions. They would go on to take the gospel to northern England and to take the gospel to Scotland. It was Patrick's faith in the Bible and the triune God that fueled his heart for missions. He writes this, In the light, therefore, of our faith in the Trinity, I must make this choice. Regardless of danger, I must make known the gift of God and everlasting consolation. Without fear, and frankly, I must spread everywhere the name of God, so that after my decease, I may leave a bequest to my brethren and sons whom I have baptized in the Lord. So many thousands of people. This is Patrick. And when we search the scriptures, and even as we approach the passage in front of us today, we find that Patrick's impulse and heart for those in different lands is not his own innovation. It's not his own idea. And friends, Patrick knew this. Patrick was fully aware that this wasn't his idea. And he was fully aware that he would go to Ireland not to proclaim himself. No, in Patrick's own words, the Lord had mercy on him. And Patrick wanted other people to know that, even the people who took him captive as a boy. What we find at the beginning of the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel is the Lord's heart for people from all lands. And we find the Lord's powerful mercy. And we find a a similar commission he gave to Patrick, a commission that he restores people. So turn in your Bibles. You'll find in uh, Mark chapter 5 in the Pew Bible on page number 840. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to read the first 20 verses. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled 
and told it in the city and the, in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had, the, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. So if you know the pattern of my preaching, I usually give a main point of whatever text from the Bible that's in front of us for the day, which, by the way, is a pattern not original to me. Um, my goal is that the main point of the passage will be the main point of the sermon. That way, what I preach uh, is not ultimately rooted in my opinion, but in God's word. So as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that the Gospel of Mark is really a straightforward account of Jesus' life. Mark tells of events from Jesus' life that give us a simple yet profound picture of who Jesus is and how we are to follow him. And that pattern picks up today. It continues today, who Jesus is and how we are to follow him. So then we see that the main point of this passage here, it's printed in your bulletin, is that when we experience the powerful mercy of the Lord, we will desire to be with him and to serve him. When we experience the powerful mercy of the Lord, we will desire to be with him and to serve him. So there you could see something about the Lord. He, he's powerful, he's merciful. You see something about us, we desire to be with him, to serve him. So if you're looking along in your Bible, you'll likely see that uh, this par passage has two paragraphs, and that's how we're going to tackle uh, this passage today. So the first paragraph, verses 1 to 13, that shows us the incident. And the second paragraph, verses 14 to 20, that shows us the outcome, the incident and the outcome. First, we notice the incident. And maybe as I read this passage, you were lamenting. Really? Another demon-possessed person? Like, we get it. Jesus can heal people. Jesus can cast out demons. Let's move on to something else. Now, I hear you, and I'm tempted to think the exact same thing. So, why should we listen to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20? Why is this important if we've already heard stuff like this before? Well, hopefully by the end of our time, you'll see that this passage isn't a waste of space in the Bible. But also, we remember that the Holy Spirit has inspired this passage as much as he has inspired the rest of this book and the rest of the Bible as a whole. There's something for us here. It's written for our instruction. And even if there wasn't anything unique about this passage, which there is, repetition creates emphasis. It shows what's important. So if Mark keeps telling us that Jesus has the authority to cast out demons, 
He keeps telling us over and over again, eventually we're going to get that Jesus has authority to cast out demons. But this is more than just repetition. There are unique elements to this account here. See that it takes place in a unique region. This isn't the land of Israel. It contains one of the longest descriptions of demon possession in the Gospels. It details an extended interaction between Jesus and demons. And those details, they give hints of eyewitness testimony. Wouldn't you want to pay attention to people who saw what Jesus did? That's what's here. That's what's written down. And we see here a unique element. Jesus gives a unique commission to the man he heals. He tells him something different than he told a lot of people. So this, this passage here, though it may sound familiar, it's worth listening to. So what's the incident? How does the incident unfold? Well, like a lot of authors do, like a lot of authors of narrative do, the first thing they want to lay out is the setting. Maybe you remember this from English class. You notice the setting of any kind of book. So you look at verse 1. And throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been in the region around the Sea of Galilee. That's northeast Israel. Whether he's going in synagogues, whether he's hanging out at Peter's house in Capernaum, or whether he's teaching in a boat on the sea. He likes to be around Galilee. He spends a lot of time there. But now, verse 1 says, he's going to the other side of Galilee. He's going further east. And the journey to get there, we saw last time in the previous passage, the journey to get to that other side was tumultuous. It was wrought with danger. Jesus and the disciples went through a storm of hurricane-like conditions. And through that storm, Jesus was sleeping. And at the same time, he awoke and he calmed it. So we notice even that storm shows that Jesus was truly human and he is truly divine. Now, they land on the shores of the Gentile region of Galilee. And if you're looking at the ESV Bible, you'll see a footnote after Gerasenes. And one of the reasons I appreciate the ESV uh, is that it's, a tra it's transparent in a lot of its translation choices. Uh, they don't want to hide anything because they don't have to hide anything. Uh, so critics will quickly point out that Gerasenes was some 30 miles inland and couldn't be the town in question. Uh, but it, it could be the case that Mark's referring to the larger region or town uh, that Jesus was going to. Or he's uh, referring to a town on the shore that's spelled very similarly. Uh, you'll see, like Gergesenes or Gergesa. So, just a footnote. Like, it's just a footnote there. It doesn't compromise the integrity of the account. It's just a detail that we can know. From a book that's 2,000 years old, we can know that. That's remarkable. Uh, so, that's the setting. Jesus is in the Gentile region of Galilee. That's important going forward. So what else do we know about the incident? You know the setting? We know the problem. So you move beyond verse 1. It doesn't take long before Jesus runs into a problem. Or more accurately, a problem runs into Jesus. Jesus gets out of the boat and immediately, the text says, a man with an unclean spirit approaches him. Parents, this might be a familiar uh, situation for you. I don't know, maybe you've a uh, long day at work, 
you're tired, you pull in your driveway, you pull in your garage. As soon as you open the door, first step in, you got kids running toward you yelling about all their problems. Immediately, you don't get any rest. A problem runs right into you. This is kind of what happens to Jesus here. But he doesn't seem to mind. And the problem that runs into Jesus, we see it's extensive. It's a terrible problem. And frankly, it's, it's sad. Demons seek to destroy those made in God's image. And in this case, the demons were succeeding. You see in verses 2 and 3 that this man didn't just live in isolation. This man lived among the tombs. Now, this is more than just, you know, pitching a tent up at Woodville Cemetery. The tombs in, in that region in that day, they'd be in caves. So just imagine living in a cave that's damp, that's dark, and that's full of dead bodies and living there alone. That's where this man is. But if that weren't enough, the demons caused this man to be a threat to himself and to be a threat to other people, even to the point where they can't even immobilize him at his hands or at his feet. They can't keep this man from screaming and mutilating himself. So we look at this passage, and this is not a scene from Veggie Tales. You know, this isn't G-rated. And Mark doesn't skim over this evil reality that confronts us. Because, friends, there are evil realities in the world that confront us and are often terrifying because we seem defenseless against them. So the problem that runs into Jesus is a grim problem. But in the passage before this, at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus headed straight into a storm. And he does the same thing here. And it was as we saw the boats uh, who followed Jesus into that storm. And we asked ourselves, are we willing to follow the Lord through the storms that we know will come into our lives? Will we voluntarily do hard things for the Lord? Here, we don't see a storm that's outward. We see a storm that rages within a person. So we ask ourselves, in light of this passage, Will we follow Jesus in reaching out to those who seem to create nothing but chaos? Will we follow Jesus in that way? And friends, it doesn't even have to be to that drastic of a, le a level. It could just be reaching out to people who are different from us. It could be reaching out to people who seem to burn us over and over again. Friends, it can even be people who we just aren't huge fans of. And in the history of our church, and I think of, of Pastor Dave reaching out to people who seem to create nothing but chaos. Oh, friends, the Lord's been kind to us in doing that. And let's pray that we increase. So Jesus goes to the other side of the sea 
and he finds a man who's different from him, and he finds a man who's in a huge mess, a mess that no one could clean up. So we can't all go to the other side of the world, but we can support those who can. And we can have the heart of the Lord who has compassion for others. Maybe we can't go to the other side of the world, but we can go to the other side of the street, to the other side of town. Here's just a simple question in light of that. Do you know your neighbors? Like your physical neighbors? Maybe that's a litmus test. Get to know your neighbors. Go into the other side of the street, people who are different from you. They're probably not even that much different from you. They live in the same place. But even further, we could think other side of town. What about volunteering for an organization like the City Mission? If you go on the citymission.org, I think, that you could click on volunteer, and they have a whole host of positions you can volunteer once a week. Partner up with somebody here. Hey, ask me. I want to do that too. So even among us, we're talking about reaching out to people who seem to create nothing but chaos, and that it doesn't even have to be to that level, to that drastic of a level. Now here, you're not going to be on the same level of relationship with every single person. But could you reach out to those who are sitting in this room, even that you don't know? Perhaps you've just avoided for some reason. People in this room who you haven't talked to in a few weeks, a month. You sit under the word together. That's following the Lord, even in a simple way. Reaching out to those who are different from us, who are other people. In Jesus' most famous sermon, he said, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. This is the important part. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. So we see this incident here. See the problem unfolding. Jesus doesn't avoid this problem. And neither has he avoided any of us. So would we follow him in this way? But the incident continues to develop. There was a setting, and then Mark introduced the problem. And in the face of this storm, what could Jesus do? I think you may know. But look at verse 6. Now, it's tough to tell if the man gained control of his operations for a moment when he saw Jesus, or if the demons knew a greater power was there. Could be a little bit of both. Either way, the demons soon take over the man again. And we see that whereas no one could bind this man, now he falls at the feet of the Lord. Not even effort, not even physical effort. And he falls at the feet. This is a no contest event. A lot of people are tempted to have sort of a dualism mindset when they think of God and evil or God and Satan. They kind of have a Star Wars mindset, right? Like the dark side and the light side. They think they're equal and competing powers. But the Bible presents us that is not the case. 
That is not the case. Though Satan roars like a lion, Satan's fate is certain. He does nothing outside the control of God. And God is bringing everything to a point when he will put Satan and evil away forever. And you know what? The demons know this. The demons themselves even know this. They know who Jesus is. They know that he has the power of judgment given by the Father. So notice, when they talk to Jesus, this isn't negotiation. No, this is pleading. To bring it back to kids and parents again, when kids get in trouble... Sometimes they'll try to convince themselves and their parents that they have control in the situation, right? They'll play the blame game. They'll try to wiggle out their way of severe punishment. Other times, though, it's undeniable that they did something wrong. It's undeniable that they're in trouble. And then they know who's really in charge. That's kind of what happens here. They see Jesus as powerful. So you see the picture of the Lord presented to us so far? And I love this dynamic. It's present in all of Scripture. That the God who is compassionate and merciful, who approaches this problem, is also the God who is powerful and judge. Friends, we should want a God who stands over evil and destroys it. We should want that. In light of all the injustice and evil in the world, that's comforting. We know that God sees injustice, that God sees evil, and we have the assurance that he will bring it to an end. But where does that leave us? Now, we aren't as bad as the demons, but are we scot-free? Well, the Bible would say no. While God in his grace restrains people so that they are not as sinful as we could be, we still sin all the same. We have not lived how the Lord wants us to live. And friends, if we desire a God who stands over evil and injustice, that means that he's going to stand over us. But in God's plan of redemption, he writes a check for mercy that his justice can cash. Christ is the payment for our injustice and our sin so that when we have faith in him alone, God can remain just because our debt is paid on the cross. And at the same time, he can be justifier, he can be merciful by crediting Christ's perfect life to our account. So see here, in the gospel, the Lord is merciful and he's powerful. So if you want to know more about what that means, if you've never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, talk to me afterwards. I'll be here. So it's evident that Jesus has the power to do something about this problem. But what does he do exactly? He casts not just the demon, but the demons into pigs. Verse 9 reveals that there were many demons residing in this man. They collectively referred themselves to as legion. So Roman military term would be equivalent to our brigades, you know, thousands of soldiers. So again, 
we see them begging Jesus for a soft judgment. They beg him to stay in that area. Maybe thinking that they were safe from Jesus there. And Jesus permits them. That's what the text says. He permits them. That's a good example of how God stands behind evil differently than he stands behind good. His will of permission. So Jesus permits them to enter the 2,000 pigs on the hillside. And they rush into the sea and drown. I don't know about you. But between the uncontrollable man who can break chains and then the 2,000 pigs rushing down into water and drowning, I've never seen anything like this. And it creates several questions for us, doesn't it? In light of this problem, why does Jesus come up with this solution? Well, Mark doesn't say exactly why, which means it's not vital for us to know. It means we should know something else from this passage. But maybe for the demons, it showed them that even when they thought they got their way, they didn't. And there were witnesses around them. In verse 14, it says there were herdsmen. Maybe for the people, it was a tangible sign that Jesus actually did what he said he did. Remember when Jesus uh, raised up, healed the paralytic man who was brought down through the ceiling. First he told them, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees were like, well, how can you say? No one can say your sins are forgiven. He says, so you know his sins are forgiven. I'm going to give you a sign. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. It shows him that he did what he said he did. Maybe that's what's happening here. But another question is, of this strange circumstance, what about these pigs? The loss of 2,000 pigs would be an economic catastrophe. So meat was not nearly as common back then as it was today. Like you couldn't go to Giant Eagle or Mark's and get, you know, thinly sliced bologna. Um, it just wasn't common. And even for them, they would have had a good customer. They would have been selling their pork to Romans. So this was a huge loss. Does Jesus just not even care? Well, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about our possessions or our livelihood. But here, Jesus proves that rescuing and restoring one man is far more valuable than the largest economic commodity. Restoring one person. If you're here today, you're hurting. You realize that the Lord has this kind of care for individuals. This kind of care that he values people more than anything else in his creation. People made in his image. And he values them so much that he completed a rescue mission beyond this one. That if you believe in Christ, he took your name to the cross, rescuing you from sin and death. Now that's care. That's individual care. For others, have you forgotten that God cares for people more than possessions? God cares for people more than possessions. Maybe it's time to take stock in what you value the most. Jesus said elsewhere, What does it profit a man 
If he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul. This is the incident. Now the dust settles after the incident and there's some fallout. So more briefly, we look at the outcome. The outcome. Mark doesn't just move on after the incident. He shows how people respond. As we pick up the narrative again in verse 14, we'll see responses from three different groups. See, the people of the region, the formerly demon-possessed man, and we see a response from Jesus. And these responses overlap some. So, first, the response of the people. How do the people of the region respond? You've already seen in Mark that despite not having social media in the ancient Near East, the news seems to spread really fast. So the herdsmen go and tell people from the city and the country, and people just show up. They're interested in seeing this. I mean, wouldn't you be interested in seeing this? Especially if you're a first century farmer, probably life isn't super exciting. You want to come and see what had just happened. But the first detail of their reaction doesn't appear until the end of verse 15. You spot that? They were afraid. Does that remind you of anything? In the previous passage, the disciples were afraid of a major storm. But when Jesus spoke and calmed it, their fear didn't go away. So here, undoubtedly, these people had been afraid of the demon-possessed man. Maybe some of them were among the people who had tried to put him down in chains. But now they see this man transformed. Now they see what was once chaos is now calm. So in both those situations, whether last week, in the previous passage, in the calming of the storm, or, or here the calming of an inner storm, something stronger than the storm was there. So who was this? who's more powerful than a hurricane-like storm? Who was this who's more powerful than a man who can break restraints, who no one can subdue? This is the Son of God. And in certain cases, fearing Him is appropriate. And if you've never felt that, I'm not sure if you have understood God's power and holiness in light of our weakness and sin. Well, what do they do after their fear? That's the important question. Verse 17. They ask the Lord to leave. Oh, they don't just ask him. They beg him to leave. And they're sounding a lot like the demons, aren't they? Begging Jesus to have nothing to do with them. There are plenty of people who express an interest in God. But when God shows up, they want nothing to do with him. There are plenty of people who express an interest in Jesus, but when they realize they can't follow Jesus and live however they want, they seem to lose interest. Coming to Jesus means giving up self-rule. That's why Jesus is called Lord, friends. But we were not made for self-rule. We were not made to live for ourselves. Now, the fact that we were made means that we were made to be living for our maker, for our creator. And living for Christ is not as if you're losing out on something. You are gaining what you were meant to live for. 
And so though Jesus is powerful, though Jesus may strike fear, and though fear may be appropriate at certain times, he still says to come to him, because there we will find rest. But Jesus concedes to their request. He gets into the boat. Verse 18, he's getting ready to leave. But before he departs, the man he healed stops him. Now you see again, he, there's someone begging something from Jesus. This time, though, the begging is different. This man doesn't beg Jesus to depart from him. He begs Jesus to remain with him. Friends, well, we have this desire. You know you've experienced Christ's powerful mercy when you desire to be with him. So maybe for this man, he wants to be with Jesus so something like this will never happen to him again. He wants to be with Jesus for a refuge. All followers of Christ desire to be with Christ. We've put to death self-rule and we've come under the rule of our Lord. So if you struggle with knowing how to pray, what to pray, but this would be a good start. Lord, would you be with me? I desire to be with you. Where do you want the Lord to be with you today? How do you want the Lord to be with you today? Continue in that prayer. Followers of Christ desire to be with Christ, as Peter would later say. To whom else shall we go? Who else, Lord, has the words of life? So we see the reaction of that man. And we see the reaction of Jesus. He doesn't permit the man to stay with him. But though Jesus will not be physically near this man, it doesn't mean that Jesus left this man. Isn't it the same with us? Christ's final words before ascending to heaven. Do you remember them? And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So instead of allowing this man to remain, Jesus gives this man a commission. Jesus told the one who had previously lived in isolation among the tombs, he tells him to go home. To go home where? To go home to his friends. Isolation to friends. You talk about restoration, what the Lord's mercy did for this man. Here it is. And in more than just sending him home, he sent him home with a message. Verse 19, he says, Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You may say, man, I just have a hard time living out my faith. You know, I, I never know the right things to say, uh, the right words around my friends or family who don't know the Lord. First of all, join the club, okay? Second of all, would these words be a hint? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Well, that's a good testimony, isn't it? So, the formerly demon-possessed man, who was likely the most infamous person in town, who cut himself, who dwelled among tombs, was now proclaiming the Lord's mercies, and people marveled. I don't know about you, but I don't have a testimony like that. 
I don't have a testimony of the Lord's mercy that will elicit much awe and wonder as this one. But if you've received the Lord's powerful mercy through the gospel, if you've been freed from the guilt and power of sin through Christ in your place, then it will show up in your life in tangible ways. That means if you proclaim to to believe in Christ, then people should be able to see the difference that makes in how you live. People should be able to notice it. I'd risk to say that the more amazed we are at the Lord's mercy, then the more likely other people will be amazed at the Lord's mercy. The more likely other people will find it interesting and captivating. Guys, guys, this is, we sing of amazing grace. We don't sing of boring grace. You know, everyday grace. We think of amazing grace. I was once lost, but now found. This is amazing mercy. This is mercy that causes us to marvel just as much as these people here. So why should other people see grace as amazing, see the Lord's mercy as amazing, if the ones who say they believe in the Lord's mercy don't see it as that amazing? Why should others? So friends, what are ways we could reignite that flame? To see the Lord's mercy as amazing once again. To marvel at the Lord's mercy once again. Maybe that's a good topic right after service. Talk to people in your pew. What are ways we could reignite the flame to see the Lord's mercy as amazing again? So, in closing, what was the result of the Lord's work in the Gentile region of the Gerasenes? It was a quick visit, but by no means was it a wasted one. Jesus showed up in power and in mercy to calm a storm that raged within a man. And for all that, people begged him to leave. And although he followed through on their request, he did not leave them without a witness. And so here, the first missionary preacher who Mark records Jesus sending out is a Gentile sent out to other Gentiles. Isn't that fascinating? So friends, can you see that although we may have never seen the exact set of circumstances presented here, that we actually aren't that far removed from this story? It goes back to our main point. When we experience the powerful mercy of the Lord, we will desire to be with him and to serve him. And this story here in our lives prove that Christ's mercy is powerful enough to save anyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for rescuing us. That you have mercy to do that. That in your mercy you sent your son, the only begotten son, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve, and to raise again for our justification. So that, God, you are powerful and that you remain just and at the same time you are merciful and justifier. God, would we follow you in having mercy to others. Having mercy, showing mercy to those who are different from us. Those who are less fortunate than us. And supporting those who also have mercy 
through the gospel to people around the world who have never heard it. God, we thank you and we praise you. Continue to have mercy on us this week and all our days. We pray in Jesus' name.